Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today on the show, we have a brilliant, I mean, the dude is just so dope and so bright. You're going to learn so much about race and policing and economics. I mean, he's a he's an economist and he talks about the data behind how we police in this country. Morgan Williams, Morehouse, uh, grad, scholar, college professor and economist who's written some brilliant work on policing and race in America. But before we get to Morgan, I guess we have to talk about the biggest news of the day. And no, it's not uh, Donald Trump's organization being indicted and his CFO being indicted as well. But it's Bill Cosby. And I think that we have to start off with the simple fact that Bill Cosby uh, is a rapist. Today's ruling did not exonerate Bill Cosby. He was not found not guilty of the charges. But Bill Cosby is a rapist. And my heart goes out to all the many victims of Mr. Cosby over the years. I think we have to understand where this stems from. This starts back in 2005 when there was a complaint from Andrea Constant that Bill Cosby had sexually assaulted her. In that case, solicitors and prosecutors determined that there was not enough viable evidence to move forward with a criminal proceeding. Do you want to know who the district attorney was in that time? Donald Trump can never escape us. His name was Bruce Castor. You may remember him from representing Donald Trump in the impeachment hearing, but I digress. There was also a civil proceeding going on against Bill Cosby. And in this civil proceeding, because Bruce Castor reached this unholy agreement whereby he stated he would not press forward with criminal charges against Bill Cosby if he testified in this proceeding, Bill Cosby sat down and took a deposition in 2005 and 2006. It was over four days in a Philadelphia hotel. What you need to know about this agreement is that this agreement said that the state of Pennsylvania would not move to prosecute him for his criminal acts. This is an important note in this case, because while Bill Cosby is a rapist, that is a fact. And although the fact is that Bill Cosby, you say, Bakari, why do you call him a rapist? Well, Bill Cosby settled a lawsuit in 2006 where he brags about slipping quaaludes to women, including Andrea Constant. He mentioned this many times where he would give women drugs and that he would then have sex with them. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the crime of rape. And this is one that is not a he said, she said. I don't even think this is me too. You know what this is? This is rape. This is plain and simple, not his word against her word. It's Bill Cosby's own words. So yes, Bill Cosby is a rapist. But the reason that Bill Cosby is walking free is not because he didn't rape anybody, but it's because of a piss poorly written agreement or non-prosecution agreement. And it's because of the fact that by having Bill Cosby sit down and testify against himself and then turn around and use that testimony against him, it violated his constitutional rights against self-incrimination. So while Bill Cosby testified in 2005 that he acquired the sedative quaaludes with the intent of giving them the young women with whom he wanted to have sex, and he admitted that giving the drug to at least one woman and other people he had to be released today because in Pennsylvania, they violated his constitutional rights against self-incrimination. 
The fact is, Bruce Castor fucked this up. There's no other way around it. And Bill Cosby should have been in jail a very long period of time for the crimes that he committed. My heart goes out to all of the victims of sexual assault and sexual abuse. My heart goes out to all of the victims of Bill Cosby who have to be hurting today and stop saying dumb shit on Twitter, supporting a man who we all know to be a rapist. No, he did not get off on a technicality. He got off because the state of Pennsylvania violated his constitutional rights and they didn't have to. It's a sad day. But that's that on that. Now on to our show with Morgan Williams. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I got a good Morehouse brother, good friend of the show, Morgan Williams. How you feeling today, my brother? Good, good, good. How about yourself? I don't have no complaints, at least none you want to hear about. How about that? Uh, you, you know, nobody's going to listen anyway, as my father used to say. <laughs> <laughs> so look, we, we start each of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. So talk us through your academic journey since Morehouse and what you'll be teaching in your new role at Barnard College. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting because, you know, I, when I first got the Morehouse, I kind of had no clue what economics was all about. And I was pretty good with mathematics and, you know, just so happened to run into chair at the time, uh, John Handy. And, uh, you know, he was like, hey, so if you picked your major or anything like that, I was like, no, not yet. He's like, well, what's your math like? I was like, OK, well, uh, I've had two years of calculus already, some statistics. He's like, all right, well, you, you know, you're pretty good. Why don't you consider, you know, some econ? And I was like, absolutely. And so, um, you know, I got, you know, the, a, a very solid, like you, education at Morehouse and uh, certainly a good foundation in terms of, you know, learning the economics profession. But then from there, uh, I did a kind of quick uh, summer kind of training program through Project Imhotep, which was a, uh, a collaboration between Morehouse and the CDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got stationed at the uh, at Carnegie Mellon's Department of Statistics. And from there, you know, I did a Fulbright. Now, the Fulbright, you know, I spent some time in Mali uh, working with UNAIDS. To be honest with you, it didn't have much to do with what my research interests are now, but that's okay because... How was, how was Mali? I want to go. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> it was hot. It was pretty cool, though. I mean, it was a, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, you get to learn about development. You get to learn about institutions. You get to learn about, you know, especially at UNAIDS, how to kind of structure certain interventions when it comes to risky behavior. So, um, you know, it was kind of still within the wheelhouse of, of where I would eventually go. And so it wasn't until I got to do my master's work at Columbia that I really kind of got a good sense of what not only economics is, but also what it can be 
And so, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, uh, you know, people like, well, you work on topics of crime and incarceration policy and race. You know, I didn't realize economists can work on those types of things. And, you know, I probably would have said the same thing, you know, about 15, 20 years ago. But let, let's uh, unpack that real quick, because yeah. your primary research focus is the economics of crime and the economics of race. Unpack what that means for our listeners. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, economics is all about constrained decision making, right? If you had infinite resources and you've made decisions, that would be very interesting. But if you look at constrained decision making, the idea that there are certain things like income, time, other things that kind of factor into how you make decisions, then you can kind of extrapolate, you know, that type of framework to other settings. So, for example, uh, within the kind of like the crime space, uh, when I teach things like, you know, the importance of drug interdiction, uh, one thing that you kind of mentioned is the fact that, well, you know, one thing that we want to know is not only, you know, what happens when you take like a, or you seize a whole bunch of drugs or the government sees a whole bunch of drugs, but what happens to prices? Because then, you know, if those drugs become, you know, more rare on the market, then the price might go up and therefore more people might enter the market. So uh, you can kind of see this type of market behavior everywhere. When you talk about gun violence, people generally make decisions about gun violence when thinking about others and when they decide to use violence they'll kind of make these decisions like, okay, you're going to use violence. I'm going to use violence. Therefore, maybe I should get a gun. Therefore, you should get a gun. And before you know it, you have a game theory type framework Mm -hmm. uh, for trying to understand gun violence. And so uh, many of the things that we, and tools that we can use in economics, the empirical tools that we can use, the theoretical tools, they're all things that kind of allow for us to kind of say unique and different things uh, about, you know, what type of economic behavior exists when it comes down to uh, race, when it comes down to, gun markets, you know, criminal history disclosure requirements, labor markets, et cetera. So we'll drill down pretty significantly into your recent paper around the size of police forces and their impact on black people. But what is it about crime and the study of the drivers of crime that constitute the core of your research? Why did you choose this area of research? Well, it also kind of, you know, uh, what, what makes it interesting to me is you go back to some of the kind of work by the late Nobel laureate Gary S. Becker who did a lot of different work, uh, but, you know, one, you know, kind of project in particular that kind of caught my eye was his work on crime and punishment. And the idea being that, well, you know, governments, you know, municipalities, et cetera, can make decisions about the type of crime rates that you want to see uh, by, you know, controlling a few different policy parameters. We can control how much people are punished. We can control, you know, maybe, you know, the probability of apprehension through, you know, different policing, you know, procedures and tactics and strategies. Um, and in that way, you know, the, you know, maybe somebody that considers, you know, uh, participating in criminal behavior uh, would do so up until the point where the benefit of it uh, is equal to the cost. And so uh, in that way, we can kind of think of it from a very unitary framework. But when it comes down to race, uh, it has a different kind of wrinkle. Right. I mean, you know, we know that, you know, for example, black Americans are unfortunately overrepresented, you know, in, the incar- in, in, in terms of incarceration rates. Uh, you know, we also know that there seems to be differences in the long racial lines in terms of robbery and other types of uh, criminal mm-hmm. behavior that we're interested in. Uh, these things kind of all feed into one another uh, when we try to think about uh, what type of interventions are necessary to improve public safety. And perhaps maybe that game theoretic model I just mentioned to you not too long ago, uh, perhaps some of the other types of uh, behaviors like all kind of come together in ways that make, you know, moving one piece change another. So uh, let's talk about your latest paper, Police Force Size and Race. Why did you and your colleagues decide to write this paper? And what questions were you trying to answer? And what did you find? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was, it's, you know, I'm happy, you know, you know, have such great uh, co-authors on the paper, uh, Aaron Charlton, Benjamin Hanson and Emily Wise first. And basically we, there's been a good bit of work that's been done uh, within the economics of crime literature that seems to suggest that, you know, certain things as it goes to policing, you know, are important to improving public safety. So one thing could be in police employment. Uh, we've seen work from Steve Blevitt. We've seen work from Evans and Owens from 2007. Uh, that seems to suggest that things like police employment, if we increase police employment, uh, that these things tend to reduce things like property, crime, and violent crime. Uh, we've also seen that thing, interventions like hotspot policing, the allocation of policing to specific areas. I mean, uh, before, you, before you, do you talk to, and I think it's important to ask this question, how often are your recommendations made in the policy? Because the, it, you're brilliant. And the way that you talk about it is brilliant. But are we seeing these these policy points from your paper actually do they actually make it into policy as we're seeing throughout the country in these major cities? No, absolutely. And so I would even go a step further and say that we use policy to be able to kind of understand uh, what's happening when we increase police employment. So, so for example, uh, one the question that we ultimately ask within the paper is, you know, what is the impact of hiring basically one more officer? Uh, on you know, homicide victimization across racial groups. We asked, okay, what's the impact of you know, hiring one more officer on serious crime, meaning the index crime, uh, you know, rape, robbery, murder, et cetera. Uh, and we also want to know, you know what's the impact of hiring that additional officer on what we call quality of life arrest, meaning uh, you know, low-level offenses that should typically accompanied by a misdemeanor, sometimes viewed as you know, having a, being a victimist crime. Uh, so those are the type of you know, interventions we're looking at, we look at them across different racial groups. Now, to get back to your original question about policy, uh, well, one thing that we try to do within economics and, you know, more so within the larger social scientific literature is that we try to kind of use these policy experiments, these natural experiments, things that kind of give us a sense of if we were to kind of, you know, actually carry out an experiment, we couldn't do something like this uh, within this setting, but if we would actually carry out an experiment, uh, what would the findings look like? And so in this case, uh, we actually kind of lean on as one of our kind of empirical strategies is the community-oriented policing services uh, office grants, which mm-hmm. are the COPS office grants established uh, under the 1994 crime bill. Many people don't realize that. Uh, with primarily the goal of adding additional 100,000 cops on the streets throughout the country. Uh, they issue, uh, you, know, uh, you know, hiring grants, non-hiring grants uh, for technology, for other types of investments. Uh, but the hiring grants take up about more than half. Uh, of those COPS grants. And so uh, the goal is that many of the departments, law enforcement agencies throughout the country, they apply for them, they provide a narrative, uh, and they can actually be, provide quite a kind of sizable increase in the police force. And they've changed as we kind of gone from one federal administration to the next. So early on in the 1990s, uh, when it was first established, uh, pretty much anybody that applied for one of these grants got one. Uh, by the time we got to the Bush administration, there was concerned that maybe this money was being kind of supplanting, you know, already existing funds that municipalities would have used to invest in law enforcement you know, and additional uh, police employment. And so they kind of stopped it. But the Great Recession also brought about a number of different kind of budgetary pressures. And so under the Obama administration, it kind of ramped it back up. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is actually an extremely kind of policy relevant uh, kind of intervention that we lean on within the paper. And we say to ourselves, OK, uh, you know, if we just focus on police employment that's attributable to things like cops, right, just the cops, uh, what is the impact of, you know, police employment through cops on many of the outcomes that I just mentioned? So that's kind of how policy kind of makes its way in this particular paper. 
Put in context this paper with the debate around defunding the police, abolishing the police, and expanding police forces. How does this paper break through all the noise around policing? So one thing that I think is kind of interesting that we're able to do in kind of in our empirical analysis, because we want to account for many different things that differ. We have a Basically, we looked at a sample of about 242 cities over about 30 plus years from 1980 about 2018. And so what we end up doing within the paper is that we say, OK, we'll control for things like racial demographics, poverty, et cetera. But we'll also control for municipal expenditure. So what does that mean? That means that the estimates that I can tell you about within the paper represent, OK, what is the historical opportunity cost of investing in one more officer rather than using those funds somewhere else? And so that's kind of like a very important kind of point when we're thinking about this larger kind of defund literature. I think there's some interesting kind of debate coming out of this larger conversation on law enforcement reform. Uh, some things are right. We want to be make sure that our police, our law enforcement agencies are efficient. They respect our rights and they do what they're you know tasked to do, is improving uh, public safety. Uh, I also think that you know one thing that we can't necessarily comment on uh, within this larger debate is what happens if we reallocate a certain amount of certain police forces budget to some other social service. We can't answer that. And to be honest, we're only now seeing maybe a handful of municipalities that are actually engaging uh, in that type of you know, policy endeavor. Uh, and it's important to kind of have that type of experimentation. Uh, but in terms of knowing exactly what it will lead to, we don't know. I mean, that that you would think is very important in these in, in a lot of these, you know, hundred and what is it? Two hundred and eighty character political debates yeah. that people are having uh, when they really should probably just read your read your paper. Connect the dots between the size of police forces and specifically gun crimes and talk about some of the variations you saw, specifically that increasing the size of police forces. This is what I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Didn't have the same positive violent crime impacts in cities in the South and Midwest that have larger black populations. Why is that? So I'll take a, just a slight step back and just kind of give you a, a bird's eye view of kind of what it is that we find. So that, that's helpful. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Cause everybody had, everybody ain't read it yet. So me and, <laughs> me and Jared had to go through this. So yeah, give us the 50,000 foot view and then drill down a little bit. Okay. Basically I outlined those three different areas that we try to look at basically what, you know, can the police improve public safety through increased numbers? Uh, can they improve what happens with arrest? And so in the arrest picture, what we find out is that, you know, the marginal officer based probably about 0.06 to 0.1 homicides. What does that translate into? That means that, you know, to save one life, you need to hire about 10 to 17 officers on average within our, within our sample, which means, you know, that, you know, there's, you know, police employment itself seems to have a very kind of important impact in terms of improving, improving public safety as we view it through homicide victimization. Those findings within itself are actually twice as large uh, for black Americans than what they are for white Americans. So the kind of public safety gains that we're seeing are kind of important from the point of view of reducing racial disparities. When it comes down to arrests, I think they kind of also provides a very interesting and nuanced picture. When we look at, for example, the index arrest that I mentioned before, these very kind of serious crimes, uh, we end up finding that, you know, increasing the police force by one officer actually, you know, leads to a reduction in serious arrests, index arrests of about one to two. Uh, and what's interesting about that is that we, you know, well, arrests themselves are kind of a function of what people do and what the police do. And so let's, we say, all right, well, let's kind of, you know, estimate the impact of having one more officer on index crimes themselves, not the arrest, but the index crimes. And what we end up finding there is that the marginal officer kind of you know, abates about 18 to 24 index crimes. So they're reducing the number of serious arrests. They're reducing the number of serious crimes. And so we kind of look at this almost as if there's kind of a double dividend at play. We maybe we can, through police employment, both reduce these kind of arrests that are generally accompanied 
uh, by lengthy prison sentences. And perhaps we can also improve the public safety picture. What's also interesting is the fact that we tend to see, you know, that these arrests are coming from things that the police would visibly tend to see. Things like ref, uh, theft, motor vehicle theft, property related offenses, et cetera. So things that if you had officers on the street, officers on the street, they can deter that type of crime through their presence. One other thing that we kind of find is that, well, with uh, black Americans, this kind of decline in arrest is about four to six times greater than what we see for white Americans. So perhaps yeah. this is also a policy lever that we can use uh, to reduce the disparities in incarceration. Um, so that's kind of one aspect of it. However, I said it was a nuanced picture. Uh, one thing that we also tend to see is that the marginal officer tends to make about an additional seven to 22 quality life arrests. So what are these quality life arrests generally concentrated in, at least the racial disparities in them? They tend to be concentrated in liquor law violations, and they also tend to be concentrated uh, in drug possession. And so in that particular arena, uh, those arrest effects are about three times greater for Black Americans. Now, it could be for a variety of different reasons that we see the disparities that we see in quality life arrests. But uh, you know, there, this is something that, given the state of the rest of the literature, that seems to suggest they might not have a lot of kind of public safety relevance to them that these are you know, disparities that we should definitely be concerned about. Now, I can turn back to your original question about you know, this effect as we go from one geography to the next. So you know, one thing that kind of made it to the cutting room floor uh, that isn't making it in the final manuscript, the manuscript is forthcoming in the American Economic View Insights. But um, one thing that you know, we tend to define is that, well, let's, let's, say, let's split our sample. I'll say we had 242 cities. Let's look at their population in 1980 and divide the sample across the distribution. So we'll have people that have very high black population shares, kind of in the middle population shares, and then very low kind of black population shares. And so in these places with very high black population shares, we're talking about St. Louis, we're talking about Philadelphia, some of these other places. Uh, what we tend to see is that we see much of the same increase in index arrests. We see increase in quality, excuse me, we see index, we see increase in index arrests, which we didn't see in the, the full sample. We see increase, uh, increases in the quality of life arrests, but we don't see the, the public safety gains in the form of reduced homicide victimization that I mentioned, again, for the full sample of cities. What we do see for the kind of this interquartile range, for this middle range, is that you know, we still tend to see the homicide victimization gains. We also see the reductions in net index arrests, and uh, we also tend to see the uh, still a modest increase in quality of life arrests. So it does mean that you know, in certain places, for whatever reason, we didn't push this too far. We hope to push it further in a separate paper. Uh, this idea that perhaps many of the cities for political economy reasons, whatever it is it may be, don't necessarily share in the gains and benefits or the cost in the same way, uh, you know, when it comes down to increasing police force size. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So what's your advice to those mayors like Vi Lyles in Charlotte, Steve Benjamin in Columbia, Frank Scott in Little Rock, our friend Randall Wolfen in Birmingham, as they get a ton of scrutiny around this issue of policing because it's a double-edged sword, yeah. because our communities are arguably over-policed and under-policed. Yeah. Uh, what's your advice for them based upon your findings? I mean, how do how do they navigate this nexus that we have between activists and actually fixing a rising crime problem? Yeah, so we kind of see us, you know, our work as kind of providing just one slice of the picture, right? There's a lot of stuff that we can't necessarily measure uh, that we would love to. For example, how police forces kind of treat citizens on a daily basis and in their interactions. Are they courteous? Are they rude? Uh, do they use their hands? I mean, things that we can't necessarily measure on our own, at least not well. Um, and, and within this particular design. Uh, what I will say is that, you know, this picture kind of shows that it's, it's somewhat nuanced, right? In, in some places, you know, in New York City, we have over 36,000 full-time sworn law enforcement officers. Uh, and so, you know, it's, yeah, so it's, a, it's a big force. And so, you know, it's one of those things where maybe the picture here looks a little different than what it might in Orangeburg or what it might in Atlanta or what it might uh, <laughs> elsewhere in the country. And so, uh, you know, what I will say is this. What, one, one thing that we kind of see as an important point to take away and build on here is that sometimes there are certain gains to be had from these institutions. Doesn't mean that this is the only margin that counts. There are other things that I kind of mentioned, again, that matter a great deal. Uh, we don't want to you know, bring more people into the criminal justice system. The more interactions that you know, people have with law enforcement agencies, no, excuse me, with police officers, the more you know, likely it could be that you know, maybe there's a use of force incident involved as well. For example, if you take our estimates, uh, about probably, I think a good estimate from the literature suggests that about maybe 2.5% of arrests, of any arrest, leads to any kind of use of force incident. Now, if you take the estimate that I provided with you with earlier, uh, that for in order to kind of abate one homicide, that means that, you know, that level of employment will lead to about on average about seven to 10 use of force incidents for which four or five uh, would include a black civilian. So these are types of things that we want to be you know kind of mindful of and careful of. Uh, and, and a really interesting book that I kind of read, Michael Fortin's uh, Black Silent Majority, uh, kind of talks about many of the disconnects between Harlem and uh, the state government and local government, you know, heading into the early 1970s. Uh, these disconnects are, are really important because you have to kind of work in tandem with communities in order to be able to kind of meet their needs appropriately. If, you know, you're going into communities and you're just kind of roughing people up and you're not necessarily doing the things that are reducing crime, uh, then nobody wins from that at the end of the day. Uh, but if you know that in your city, particular city that maybe, you know, you're understaffed and maybe there are certain things that we could do to kind of improve the clearing of cases or to improve the reduction of homicides, then maybe that's something that we should, you know, kind of entertain. So what we see is that, you know, if you want to kind of think out the box and reimagine public safety, uh, we need to kind of get a sense of what it is that police are and are not doing. And we need to kind of measure things better. We need better data on use of force. We need better data on a variety of different outcomes that will allow for us to be able to kind of speak on what it is the police are and are not are and are not doing in a substantial way. Sounds like we need the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act so we can get that data. That's a whole nother, whole nother conversation. Absolutely. The Biden administration recently announced steps that it would take to reduce gun violence, which includes more resources for police officers. Yeah. Based on this paper and your research broadly, what's the optimal role for the federal government to play in reducing gun violence? So it's interesting, right? So when it comes down to gun violence, and I've, I've done a, quite a bit of work in, gun violence, in the area of gun violence, and uh, you know, one thing that's interesting is you know, we do some things that are very important when it comes down to keeping guns out of the, out of the hands of people that don't need them. 
you know, the Brady Act obviously kind of imposed these necessary background checks uh, that are conducted, you know, anytime you go to a gun store or anybody that's kind of in the business of selling firearms. However, uh, you know, the private sales, the, you know, the sales that are between people who are not in the business of, of selling guns. So if somebody, uh, you know, wanted to kind of, you know, sell me a gun and we were just friends. And depending on what state we're in, we might have to give it back, undergo a background check. We might not. And so, you know, what some of the most recent legislation that's kind of being tackled now, uh, or what, you know, proposes to do is to try to close some of those gaps and allow for, you know, uh, the standardization of background check requirements across these private sales and, you know, the usual types of, uh, you know, uh, formal gun sales that we, we tend to see. So uh, that's a step in, in the right direction. Now, I kind of mentioned policing as one intervention. We also kind of acknowledge that there are many other different interventions that are yes, like very important yes, to kind yes. of addressing gun violence. Uh, in my own work, and it's kind of nice as a, a little bit of a prelude, I, I mentioned again that kind of game theoretic type setup uh, earlier. Uh, one thing that's kind of, you know, uh, not taken into account is that gun violence tends to be concentrated in a number of different neighborhoods within a number of different street segments. One of the uh, things that I try to point out to people is that even within, you know, very impoverished uh, census tracts or districts, uh, there tends to be only a cluster of individuals or a cluster of different kind of streets or, or segments that really do account for most of the gun violence that we see in many of these cities. So what happens is that in places like St. Louis, where I've done a little bit of research, uh, you know, you see like, you know, these huge amounts of segregation and you also see these huge amounts of segregation in, in, in gun violence. And, you know, that type of saturated gun violence presence makes somebody think twice about the idea about whether or not I should carry an illegal firearm, something that seems irrational to most people. But if you think about the fact that the police aren't going to accompany you from one block to the next, if you happen to step on somebody's shoe the other day, you know, that's something that, you know, you really kind of have to take into account. And so, uh, you know, maybe that type of strategic decision to carry a gun is something that can lead to an arms race. And those types of things can be kind of addressed not only through background checks, not only through policing, but also through things like cognitive behavioral therapy, youth summer employment. Uh, these are things that have been shown to have very positive effects on reducing crime. We don't know necessarily how those things will scale up. So we don't know how those things can kind of fit in the larger picture of kind of replacing or redefining the scope of policing. But they are things that we should continue to test and kind of use uh, within the policy realm. My last question for you today is this paper made a lot of waves. And by the way, I just want to say thank you because you've actually educated me as I prepare to go on CNN later today to talk <laughs> about whatever it may be. But yeah. this is a very in-depth and well put together uh, research paper. But it made a lot of waves. And how does your research translate into practice? And are you getting this in front of the mayors and local executives who are making these decisions? And then what's next for your research? So I will say that, you know, we try to, you know, kind of put our work out there, you know, both in terms of, you know, for academic consumption, but also for policy consumption. So uh, in, in terms of like direct, you know, uh, you know, conversations with policymakers, uh, we've had maybe a few. I just gave a, a talk to the Red Cross out of all places, not maybe about a week ago. Uh, and they were interested in this topic because there's a blood shortage and gun violence contributes to that gun shortage. And so they were interested in the ways in which policing and other types of interventions are important to be able to do the jobs that they do. Uh, in terms of mayors and others, I mean, we, we certainly are open to kind of having this discussion. This is one study within the larger landscape of policing. There's still a bunch of work to be done. Uh, but we do feel as if we're contributing to a discussion that hadn't been kind of talked about before. A lot of those papers that I mentioned to you about the evidence of police employment yeah. didn't really think about race. And so a lot of my work kind of focused on race and the importance of the nuances of race, the policy decision making. 
Um, you know, a lot of uh, some of my work kind of focuses on criminal history disclosure requirements, labor markets. Uh, and so ban the box laws has been something that, you know, seemed to be very kind of interesting in that, you know, they on their face, they seem to do all the things that you want them to do. Uh, in terms of getting people's foot in the door that might have a criminal record and, you know, and not making it such that they won't be kind of uh, entertained because of uh, the criminal record for maybe some employment that they desire. Uh, those types of interventions can have very kind of different, uh, you know, policy outcomes that might be contrary to what people believe. And so it's, I, I see it as my role as an economist, as an empiricist, as a social scientist, uh, to be able to kind of take on these topics uh, in a rigorous and meaningful way. And to kind of give an honest kind of critique about where this kind of fits within the larger policy landscape and societal landscape. So uh, a lot of my work will continue to work on, you know, race and the labor market, race and and uh, and the criminal justice system and ways in which I hope that are kind of, uh, you know, a tip of the cap to what it is that we're trying to do and reducing uh, racial inequality in the country. Man, this was a special power pack show, man. I just got to say thank you so much for taking some time out, 30 minutes out of your day to join us and educate not just me, but my listeners around the world. So thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast, my brother. This was a dope interview. Uh, thanks, Bakari. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, before I let you go, I just have to give a word of shout out and happy birthday to my good friend, Charlemagne the God. Um, Charlemagne Leonard McKelvey. Um, is not only a good friend of mine from the great state of South Carolina, but Charlemagne is um, someone who's been a beacon of light in the industry throughout the state and who's always there when you need him. I think that most people know that Charlemagne is a radio DJ, but they don't know the work he does in his community. They don't know how he calls you just on a random day to say peace, brother, and lift you up. They don't know about his his entire nonprofit apparatus and the things he does to help stimulate growth in a very poor community that he comes from. And I'm not sure that they know some of the things he has working with Audible and others coming up in the future. But Charlemagne, I want you to get your flowers while you're living, brother, because we truly appreciate you here on the show. We love you. Uh, Charlemagne the God, we don't do this often, but we wanted to take some time and simply say happy birthday to you, brother. Peace to you, your loved ones, your family, your growing family. Happy birthday and many, many more. 